0: hello friends and welcome to conversations with consequences we are the radio show and podcast of the catholic association where we aim to change the culture one conversation at a time you can listen to conversations with consequences on the ewtn global catholic radio network saturday mornings at 7 a.m eastern or catch the encore at 5 p.m we are also on sirius xm channel 130. of course our radio show is always a podcast go to thecatholicassociation.org slash podcasts or directly to wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie. Thank you for joining us again this week. Please tell your friends about our show and subscribe and like our like our YouTube channel. It's always wonderful to know that we have loyal listeners out there. I hope we're doing you good. This week, we have another great show lined up. We have a new movie opening in the theaters this week about a miracle at Lourdes. It features a star-studded cast, and we're going to talk to Thaddeus O'Sullivan. He's the director of The Miracle Club, starring Laura Linney, Kathy Bates, and others that you will recognize and be excited to see. But first, with the recent news of Pope Francis releasing the names of the Synod participants, as well as the appointment of Archbishop Victor Manuel Fernandez to the Congregation of the Doctrine of the faith, now known as the dicastery for the doctrine of the faith, we've asked our good friend Mary Fiorito to join us. She is the ethics and public policy Cardinal Francis George Fellow. She's also an attorney, a public speaker, and also a radio show host. Welcome to the show,
1: Mary. Thank you for having me, Gracie. It's great to be back with
0: you. So, Mary, we thought you'd be the perfect person to talk to about um, some developments out of the Vatican that have been that have been developing. <laughs> to be yes. to be tautological um and you know most catholics and i think that you'll find you you would agree with me mary and our listeners most of us uh, practicing catholics people who who care about our faith we're really just practicing our faith we're getting up in the morning and offering our day to god and then going to mass and trying to get in our rosary and some time for prayer later and trying to be Christ to others. And those are all, that's all a big deal, right? That's that's a huge part of our lives and it ought to be the right. biggest part. And that's wonderful. But meanwhile, in the background, there's all this stuff going on in the church and many of us um, don't we don't pay that much attention because sometimes it can be a little disturbing because <laughs> we yes. don't, we worry about how this the Holy Spirit is acting through the church. And sometimes it's hard to understand how that process works. So I'm saying all of this sort of as a preparation to speaking about the synod on synodality, which it has mm-hmm. been going on for some time, but it's culminating now in October in a big meeting of, of, of the synod. So we have this going on, which many of us have found confusing. Um, the concept is confusing, a synod on synodality, and then some of the, some of the ways that it has transpired and the, and the things that we might hear, even if we don't delve too deep, can be worrisome. For instance, just to throw one thing out there, is this idea that um, the German Catholic Church has these very progressive, um, I'm not sure that's the right word because it's not progress, it seems to me, um, regressive ideas about about male and female and sexuality that they're trying to inject into the general church. So that's one that's one thing, but there are others. So we thought you'd be the perfect person, Mary, to talk to about this subject, which is complicated and requires a lot of charity, but also
1: a lot of clarity. Oh well, thank you. I'm I'm happy to be with you, and I'm hoping that we're going to have a great conversation about this because there's a lot of interesting things going on.
0: So. The, the the bishops that go uh, to the synod, the cardinals, bishops, and archbishops that participate have been handpicked, right? Um yes. By the Vatican, it's not all of them. They're not all invited to come and participate. So they're handpicked, and and they even include lay people. So there have been some appointments which have raised eyebrows, <laughs> yes. amongst many. Um, so tell us about that, and why these people are are picked, and what are the which are the people that are raising eyebrows.
1: You know, to use your adjective to be charitable, I think you know as a Jesuit. The Holy Father was trained and uh, went through a formation process um, in which intellectual intellectual and dialogue are a very big part of sort of the formation project when you're a Jesuit. And if any of the listeners have been to a Jesuit school, they know that the Socratic method is often used in the classroom, and a a vigorous theological debate is always welcomed, right? And it doesn't necessarily mean you're trying to argue against the faith. It can very well be a way to simply try to refine an idea, to make it more understandable, to come up with the best possible arguments and the best possible responses. So when we're talking, Talking about the American delegation uh, that will be going to this synod on synodality. Syn- I'm still trying to figure out how to <laughs> pronounce that word. It's a mouth. It's a mouse word. <laughs> it's, I mean, I, well, it's a mouthful. <laughs> like uh, you know, some kind of like wacky Monty Python skit, doesn't it? It's the yeah. strangest name. And meeting, I don't know. I, it's like I a, the
0: the meeting of meetings. The, no, the meeting. Know, we're meeting to discuss meetings. Uh, <laughs>
1: You know, again, it's like, you know, those old Monty Python skits where, you know, the, 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 no one would expect the Spanish Inquisition and some cardinals running, you know, all that kind of wacky stuff. So it it um I, I think even choosing that particular name for it has led to some confusion or people just outright kind of roll their eyes and move on because they don't understand what it even means. Right. Yeah, there's, a, to...
0: there's a kind of opaqueness about, about the title that, that yes. makes people just
1: blink. Twice and, yes, and move on <laughs> exactly, and 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 unless again, you're if, if you're my sense of this is if I went to my parish and I live in a pretty you know standard um, U.S. parish, it's run by a religious order by the Dominicans. It's just a very kind of centrist, center-right parish, right? We don't have any, we don't have a traditional Latin mass, we don't have a Latin mass at all, but it's a very valid liturgy with no nonsense, and we have confessions every day. So it's a pretty it's a pretty solid parish. But if I went to the noon daily mass at my parish, which is very well attended, and just asked 10 random people that I encountered if they could tell me what the synod on synodality was. Gracie, I could tell you 9 out of 10 couldn't answer that question.
0: Well, I want to tell yeah, you, Mary, that, that that absolutely characterizes my parish, except I might go a little further and say maybe 6 out of 10 would say what synod on synodality. They haven't heard of it.
1: Correct. They haven't heard of it. And these are, I mean, for the most part, daily communicants. Yes, these yes are, these I'm talking are, about our daily, and, our daily people. Right. I, you know, the kind of cynical part of me wonders grace if that was done intentionally, so that people really wouldn't understand what was going on. And therefore, when whatever conclusions are reached from the Synod, people are like, wait, when did this all happen? What are you talking about? So, so you're saying,
0: Mary, um, to not be so charitable, you're saying maybe what they were trying to avoid was having a meeting, a Synod that w- would be titled something like the Synod where we really get down to brass tacks and decide whether women can be priests and homosexual unions can be blessed right, right correct. which would yes. which like, would get everybody running around in circles <laughs>
1: thinking about yes. and,
0: thinking about the the sky falling on their heads
1: <laughs> well and it, it, it seems to me chris because the issues that are going to be discussed here are so important you know if i, I would be much more careful about making sure that the people I was in charge of shepherding and helping to learn the faith was awa- first of all aware that this was going on, uh, was aware that their input, you know, was possible. You can, as a layperson, uh, offer your opinion or your suggestion. Which there uh, was, solic- right,
0: Mary? There right. was a, there was a questionnaire. I remember answering it. I don't remember. Ex- I don't remember very vividly what it asked. The, the the question seemed. If I remember it properly, they seemed rather vague and open ended.
1: Right. Like, are Um, you
0: satisfied with this or that? Or do you feel accompanied? Things like that.
1: Okay. Yeah. And, and again, things like just kind of depending on the day and the level of formation of the average, you know, American Catholic can mean a lot of different things. I think, you know, what's important for uh, people to understand is that the average American Catholic, first of all, doesn't go to a Catholic school. I think it's only 10 percent of U.S. Catholics now, if you can believe that, the number is that low, who actually attend a Catholic school. So the vast mm-hmm. majority <clears throat> excuse me, of, of Catholics in the United States are getting their formation, say, for half an hour every Wednesday from the time they're in second grade because their parents want them to receive their first communion until the time they're confirmed. And that's kind of seen as Catholic graduation. And then they go on with their lives and we don't see them again until they're getting married, if we even see them then. So you really do have a large percentage of Catholics. Well, and very very
0: sadly, uh, not to be so negative, but there's not a lot of formation that goes on in most uh, homilies um, for for your Sunday family mass, right? So you might take your children every Sunday until they're big teenagers, but maybe they're not learning very much on Sunday
1: days right right and i and i think you know you have people who are you know the, the valiant volunteers i like to call them who are often um the ccd or you know um Whatever the formation is for public school children, they're almost always volunteers. They're hardly ever paid positions, and they're, so you get people. They're who, the
0: best. They're amazing. <laughs> when, I yeah, of, no. when I think of when I think of what they put up with and the efforts yes. that they make, but you were probably yes. going to say that
1: their formation level we can't be too sure about either, right? Correct. Right, and it's not necessarily their fault. I mean, you know, I attended Catholic grade school. You know, in the in the eighties and early nineties, and I can tell you, you know, my parents um, were not born in the United States. They were both born in Scotland. And um, there's a lot of anti-Catholicism in Scotland. And so it, Christmas wasn't even uh, a holiday in Scotland until like 1958, because the Protestants thought it was a papist holiday. And so people, everybody had to go to work on Christmas Day. That's how anti-Catholic Scotland was. They wouldn't even let them have Christmas off. That's, you know, again, in 1958, that that changed and there were some more civil rights for Catholics. But um, my point is that my parents, when they came to the United States, were, of course, very felt well-formed in their faith, but also it was you know, very much a part of their identity, and they protected it rather ferociously because they knew what it was like to live in an anti-Catholic country and culture. And so, I, I had a lot of formation at home that my parents didn't sit down and teach us, but you just kind of absorbed it, right? Like, mm-hmm. you know, I sure. mean, if, if we attempted to, like, go outside and bounce a ball on Good Friday, my mother would have, like, you know, <laughs> grounded us for a week. I mean, so we, we really did. The Savior did is out. hanging on the cross for you, Mary, today. Right. Exactly. <laughs> you want to play basketball. What are you thinking? You know, so that... The, so we would have picked up, you know, just kind of by osmosis, crazy some of these things that we know, and then you know it's it's so funny. And I, I I have friends and they went to mass every Sunday, but you know either the parents assumed they were getting good formation at home and they are at school and they really weren't, or you know they just didn't realize that the faith wasn't being taught in its entirety. I mean I just had, you know really funny conversation with someone who I know was raised in a good Catholic family, and we were going up for some reason we're going to the same mass, and I said, oh gosh, I can't go to communion i just ate 10 minutes ago because it wasn't within the hour and she was like what are you talking about i'm like well, you, you have to fast for an hour before you can't receive communion and i just had a cheeseburger so i can't go she said and didn't she they like, change th- that decades ago <laughs> oh no no she said it never ended she said that, that that's not a rule i said no it, it, it actually is um <laughs> you're required to adhere to it she was, and she said, I, you know, you hear this, this is the, the line you hear all the time. I went to a Catholic school for 12 years. I never heard that. So therefore, it must not be true. So anyway, when we got to mass, I pointed out the missalette where it says you have to fast for an hour. She was astounded and I think a little embarrassed, right? So, you know, and, and again, a good person, doesn't miss mass on Sunday, occasionally goes during the week, had never been taught that ever in all of her. So, you know, you, well, there's you're, this you're, huge, just,
0: there's this been this, there's has been this huge emphasis on God's mercy. Since right. since the Vatican II, with a complete misunderstanding of what mercy is, because God's not merciful right. to sin, right? He wants to He wants to rip sin right out of our hearts and step on it, <laughs>
1: he, right? Well, because yes.
0: He wants to deliver us from sin. So the mercy is for right. the sinner, but not for the sin.
1: Yes. So and and you know and an emphasis on God's love and God's mercy, which again in the proper context are not bad things. You want. People to understand that God loves them and created them specifically for a purpose, and God is infinitely mercy. Um, you know, we we know this from the beautiful you know diaries of Saint Faustina, um, where where she was the, what he called the apostle of her mercy, where she tried to share God's love and mercy, unfathomable, unfathomable mercy, mm-hmm. is how Saint Faustina. Um, but don't but you think there was
0: most a- people nowadays think mercy is indifference, right? Like God's mercy oh, is right. really his indifference. They they believe that his, when they when they hear the word mercy, what they hear is God is indifferent to how to your behavior and he's like your butler your celestial butler right. <laughs> yes.
1: and that you know um god, you, you can't you have to balance God's mercy with god's justice because it god is not giving via his mercy he's not giving you license to go out and sin right and we see that with christ with the woman caught in adultery go and sin no more he says that to the woman at the well go and sin no more and you know you have you have people now that in addition to mercy now the new thing is the primacy of my conscience you know, you know, the church has always taught that people's conscience is primary and it has to be respected in all circumstances, as if that was a license to sin. I had, you know, was following this argument on Twitter where this man was saying, you know, there are people in whose faith traditions abortion is permissible, and so the primacy of their conscience. Should overrule whatever you know um, prohibitions we have against killing unborn children. I mean, it's insane. Your conscience cannot cannot give you license. Well, I'm sure all to, the slaveholders to break a divine all law. The,
0: all the slaveholders in the South before the before the Civil War were probably very comfortable in their conscience, right? Sure, of course. Everyone well, everyone around them had slaves, and it was yes. the accepted economic form of, right. of their society. So
1: right, yeah. Oh, sure. You could lots of comfortable it. consciences. Sure. You could justify that in a variety of ways. You know, they have shelter. They have food. They are cared for. They have, you know, we don't mistreat them. They, this is, you know, um, they, they're helpless without us. Right. Exactly. And, you know, this is the law. It's legal. Mm-hmm. So therefore, it must be right. So you have some of that, too. So again, so that's kind of like just, you know, a broad way of sort of setting the scene for what, at least from the perspective of American Catholicism, is a really tenuously (laughs) catechized group of people for the most part. There was that Pew study a few years ago that showed that if Catholics go to only CCD, so they go to public grade school, they go to a public high school, and then whatever university they happen to go off to, if they go to only CCD, 95% of those people leave the Catholic faith by the time they're adults. Confirmation is, is quote unquote, it's, a horrifying statistic. Now, if they went to a Catholic high school, that has a little bit of a protective effect. Oddly enough, the high school experience more than the grade school experience, which kind of makes sense because that's when you're kind of developing into an adult who takes you know personal responsibility for their own faith. So there was a little bit of a protective barrier there. And I think it went up to like 75% of those were practicing Catholics, but not being kind of brought up and formed in Catholic households, in Catholic schools where, you know, I mean, you can do whatever you want during Lent, but there's really no replicating a Catholic school day to day during Lent, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, the, I just remember as a child that that I have to say the sisters who taught us did very, very well. You know, I mean, there were no no sweets, no treats. We There was extra prayer. There was daily mass, all of those kind of things, which helped us to understand that, you know, Lent's a very serious thing and, you know, not following the precepts regarding Lent are, are serious sins as well. Right, so right. so then, Mary,
0: all of this, all of this to say the lack of uh, catechetical instruction and formation in American Catholics, um, then results in when you deliver to them um, a questionnaire about how the church right. is meeting their needs, they're not exactly in the right position to to, to give the, the answers that the church really yes. needs right because Correct. right. What what does it mean to ask people about the church if they don't understand what the church is? It's a very Correct. it's like asking I don't know somebody like me how NASA should be run, right? Because sometimes because right. well, I've, I've watched a couple of these planes, <laughs> yes, take off and go off into space. Yes, uh, so I'm yes. not really you a saw judge.
1: Apollo Eight take off, and so therefore you know, right? So um, know, um, and, so. you know, no, so they don't know what they don't know is the best, I guess the kindest way to put it. They don't they don't even know what they don't know there are also 5 bishops who were going who were elected by their brother bishops. And so I think those five who are going because American, they were elected their own American brothers? American, American brothers. Yes. Bishops. Okay. Right. So Bishop Barron mm-hmm. of the Diocese of Winona-Rochester and Word on Fire, who that name would be very familiar. He's a delegate. He was elected as a delegate. So was Cardinal Timothy Dolan of New York. Bishop Daniel Flores from Texas. Bishop Kevin Rhodes from South Bend, Indiana, the, the Diocese of Fort Worth, South Bend. Terrific guy. Very, very much involved in this Eucharistic revival project that the bishops are doing. And then Archbishop Tim. Timothy Bergoglio, who is the president of the Bishops' Conference right now and from the Archdiocese of the military. So I think the, those five, again, who were voted in by their brother bishops and asked by the other bishops to represent them to the Holy Father, that to me is a very encouraging yes, sign. those, those are, are all very, very,
0: solid um of God and yes. of the Church and people right. that—, that we can rely on to to, to carry our standard to the Synod.
1: Right. And each with a very different uh, area of expertise or who who work in apostolates that are very specific, like Bishop Barron, of course, with um, evangelization, using the modern technology and media to evangelize, very well known for that. Bishop Daniel Flores has done remarkable work with migrants in Texas. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, of course, has great respect for the United States laws on migration and immigration, but also very has a very much a heart for for migrants and for what what they are going through. And so, you know, that's a and he's very very pro life as well. And yes,
0: yes. okay, yes. so wonderful appointments from the bishop from the brother bishops. Okay, right. so so uh, and
1: again, which I think reflects what the U.S. bishops want Pope Francis to know and understand about the church here. So I you know to my mind that's really what we as American Catholics should be and, sh- and we should be very grateful and we should be praying for them those five men mm-hmm. who are going because there will be a lot of scrutiny on them. Um, and and I, and I
0: like what you say it's a signal to Pope Francis of what uh, the American Catholic um, experience is and and how how we are living our faith like on the on the yes. ground right which is not necessarily Correct. what the the questionnaire responses might show.
1: Right, exactly. And then, as you alluded to, there are those that the Holy Father appointed personally. And so, and, you know, again, if I'm going to be uncharitable, the uncharitable part of me would say, um, that's because they never would have been elected by their brother bishops. The way in which they approach some issues, particularly issues of you know moral imperatives, they would would be seen as a little ambiguous, and so they were not chosen. So they had to be appointed. That would be the only way that they could go to the synod. Would be if the if the Holy Father had to appoint them directly to do so. And you know there 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 are some who's who have I don't know if they're intentionally trying to mislead, but they certainly say things that can lead people to be confused, and so. You know, those are, are, are Cardinal Tobin, Cardinal McElroy, Cardinal Supich, and Father James Martin, who is the Jesuit priest. Again, he would probably be the antidote to Bishop Barron in terms of being very well known. And he is particularly known for his advocacy for what he calls the LGBTQ plus community. And he has and he's made some statements that, you know, including one time I saw him tweet that he that he was speaking to two gay men and said, "I hope there is a there will be a time when you can go into a Catholic church and have your marriage recognized." Something words to that effect, which of course are completely in opposition to what the Church teaches on marriage, uh, to what Christ Himself taught marriage was. That's puzzling because they so the the those bishops, as opposed to the bishops who were elected, really seem to represent two sides of a coin, if if you will, and you know they belong to the same church. But you know, I thought you know Bishop Barron was asked by I was I think it was maybe Fox News, but, you know, he said he, it was his, I'm I'm kind of paraphrasing him. He says, you know, if you look at the whole thing, the American delegation sort of balances out ideologically. And so, you know, uh, I mean, Bishop Barron, of course, is very well educated and he has a, you know, PhD and uh, from one of the European universities. And so he likes to talk about the way academics talk about things. He's like, you have to maybe think of this as like what he calls the Jesuit, the Jesuit seminar table, where you get a lot of voices around the table. You have a big debate about something and then you, you see where you, where things land after that. And it's, and it's important to, to like, to understand too, with this synod, it's not a democratic process to change doctrine in the church. So there's not going to be a vote on, whether or not the Catholic Church will now recognize same-sex marriage, and the Catholic Church will now change its teaching on homo- homosexual sexual acts as being intrinsically disordered, um, there's not going to be a vote on those things. There's not going to be a vote on women's priests. And what's interesting, too, with the delegation, the American delegation, only six women appointed by the Holy Father, which I, which surprised me.
0: Out of how I many? Thought, Out of
1: how many, Mary? Oh, gosh. Out of hundreds? Yes, I think so. There's only six women going.
0: So if they're not gonna have a vote and, and introduce new doctrine, which is wonderful, what are they gonna do? They're going to create a document, I suppose, and there's gonna be a written up uh, something like Amoris Leticia or um Right. One of those documents where there are I mean Amoris had beautiful things in it, but it was also sort of a hodgepodge of ideas. So sort of yes. thrown together and given oxygen. Some ideas were given oxygen that you wonder why they need oxygen. There's there's they seem to be on fire already all over the world. So do you, do you expect something like is that what we're expecting at the end well, uh, some sort I, of document?
1: Yeah, well I'm sure there'll, there'll be a document, but there, there's not going to be again. The, the, these people who have been called to participate in the synod whether chosen by the Holy Father as a delegate or voted in by their own bishops conference. This is to not to take a vote, not to take a vote to change anything in the church. But to talk about, and again, this will probably come out in some sort of teaching document, to debate a path forward to greater evangelization. How are we going to go forward evangelizing in a culture where even, you know, when you uh, survey American Catholics, you know, again, who are largely uncatechized, but if you survey them, a large percentage now will say, oh, I, I believe that two men or two women um, can get married and that would form a sacramental bond. Um, how do you evangelize in a culture like that? And, and
0: that's and, and that's are, a very important question because- it is. The- general culture has shifted dramatically. It's almost unrecognizable, um, yes. as we discovered during June, right? As yes. uh, our young people are growing up in a, in a completely different universe. And we do have to get a, a handle on that and, and, a, and a grasp on that, because we have to evangelize in a different...
1: You know, it was interesting uh, that you should say that I was invited, oh, about six or nine months ago to speak to a graduate school uh, so the Graduate School of Journalism at Columbia, um, you know, which is one of the finest master's degree programs in journalism in the country. And so, you know, it was kind of like they really put me through the paces, you know. So it was all these students and, you know, uh, one of them was and they come from all over the world to go to this school. was from one of the African countries. And he was talking about how their minister of health, uh, he says, goes to mass every day. She is a devout Catholic, but she really promotes getting contraception to women as as, as often and as much, you know, as, as she can. And that is well known, and her bishop still allows her to receive Holy Communion. Well, you know, I can't speak to a personal situation like that. I said, you know, but what what she's doing, if if she says she's doing it because she's Catholic, that's wrong. You know what I mean? She can, I mean, sometimes politicians are put in difficult situations where they have to um, either just be neutral on something that their faith tells them is wrong. And I'm not talking about things like abortion, which is an entirely different conversation. But, you know, and then, but I had one student who, you know, really kind of went after me on the the same-sex marriage thing. And I said, you know, you have to kind of back up when when you're talking about what the Catholic Church thinks about marriage and teaches about marriage, you know, which everybody agreed with, that Barack Obama agreed with when he was running for president. (laughs) I mean, for goodness sake. So you need to back up a little bit and, and think about what marriage is and why the government got involved in marriage in the first place. And when you go back and you look you know, through why any government would even feel the need to be involved in pe- people's personal romantic lives, it was only because it was a conjugal union that could result in a child. And because of that the government, it was in the best interests of of the community that the government be able to tie those children legally, uh, mostly to the father, but to the two people who created them and therefore had a responsibility. Yeah, or to else so, uh,
0: society had no future. Society would end correct. exactly at the end of that ge- one generation, right? Cause, correct. Cause so, a fugitive father is the end of society.
1: Correct. So so marriage was about, uh, was about children, frankly. That's what it was. It wasn't about. Love is love. And frankly, the government shouldn't be involved and have any say in who you Love and what you do—that's not the government's role, right? So they they became, um, you know, involved and promoted marriage, you know, as as a good and as a as something that would be recognized by the law for the benefit of the children who could result from that union, because the union is by definition conjugal. That's it, the end. So when you're getting into redefining marriage, you're you're taking. The the entire purpose of the government being involved in marriage was simply to make certain that the children who were created through conjugal unions would be provided for and there would be somebody tied to them legally with responsibility for that care. You just can't go out creating children and then, you know, drop them off someplace when you don't want to, you know, when it gets hard or you hit a bump in the road with a rebellious teenager. No, you're legally responsible for them. That's why the government got involved. And so when the Supreme Court redefined marriage to love is love, I mean, you know, frankly, I don't see any way that they can really keep polygamous marriages from, bringing, uh, from being recognized, because if we're just talking about love and there's no other standard that we're looking at, it's just who you love and how you love them, and families come in all shapes and sizes or whatever the talking points that we're using are, then I, I don't think you can exclude no, you uh, polyamorous or polygamous families. No, the
0: logic, um, the logic has to play itself out. But Mary, correct. we have
1: played out our time, <laughs> which oh, I can't believe. Well, thank yeah, you, Yeah, thank you for the invitation. It's always good to talk to you.
0: back to Conversations with Consequences. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie. Next up, we welcome to the show Thaddeus O'Sullivan. He's the director of a movie opening this week called The Miracle Club, which I'm very excited to see. uh, It has a star-studded cast, including Maggie Smith, Kathy Bates, Stephen Ray. I'm sure you're all recognizing those names. Also, Laura Linney, and it's a story set in 1960s Ireland about a group of women who um, had this great dream of going to Lourdes, bringing their, their uh, cares and concerns and their need for grace to that great source of, of God's intervention that is Lourdes in France. Um, the trailer is absolutely charming. I'm really looking forward to watching this movie this weekend and also talking to her director, Thaddeus O'Sullivan. Welcome to the show, Thaddeus.
2: Thank you very much. I'm delighted to be here.
0: Well, I thank you so much for making time for us. This is uh, We're recording this just before your big opening weekend um, of your wonderful new movie, which I have to admit, I've only seen the trailer. I didn't get a screener um, option to see the film, but I'm very excited about it, and, and I'm hoping that... You can also spark a lot of interest, uh, for this film, uh, with all, with all our listeners. So the film is, uh, looks absolutely charming and the, you have an amazing cast. So tell our, um, our listeners about your, your amazing film.
2: Uh, wait, the, the film is about, um, uh, a group of, uh, working class Irish women who go to Lourdes looking for a miracle.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And, uh the miracle they're looking for they vary um uh, some are looking for conventional miracles in a sense of a a bolt of lightning um from above that's going to solve their problem and others are um a bit more relaxed and uh into expectation of some kind of spiritual um uh experience perhaps uh, not so dramatic um, and it is a, a drama a comedy um the uh the, the 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 comedy side I guess is a, a very Irish kind of humor and the the drama is uh the the uh, journey of self-discovery that that they they go through um largely uh inspired by what we like to call the Lourdes effect which is that's that sense that people have when they go to Lourdes uh of um, of something, uh, of some moment of change that they experience, whether it's something uh, a spiritual reevaluation, or whether it's uh, some extreme cases uh, a miracle. But um, so all of our characters go through some transformation, largely uh, because of the um, arrival among them of a, an, an old friend who they've. Uh, done hard by uh or uh, in the past so uh that is the um the the key to the drama so uh, is this
0: and and your movie has a tremendous cast uh i was i was rather blown away actually when i saw the trailer because you have um women like maggie smith and kathy bates um who all of our listeners i know exactly know exactly who they are you have stephen ray and people people who bring um, decades of 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 real mastery of their craft to to your to your uh, to your work.
2: That's a very good word, a mastery mastery of their craft. Um, I, I've worked with a lot of actors over the years, but this experience is something else. Um, to watch uh, all these actors um, and the way in which they they approach their work, in some cases they're uh, similar, uh, and in other cases are uh, Unique to each of them, um, but uh, in in all cases, I think they, uh, the the power that they had brought to the set was just um, palpable. Um, uh, they were uh, so in character at the moment they walked onto the set. It was um, it was inspiring. Um, they all um, had thought very deeply about each character. Um, and I think so. there was very little for me to say, uh, you know, when, when discussing a scene with them, um, they would try something out and, uh, and, and ask me if that was right or that, they want me to, that I want to, them to try something else. So they were relaxed in that kind of way, uh, quite easy to work with and um, were uh, anxious to, to please and to, to tell the story. Um, I think I, like uh, any great actors, they are, they are storytellers. That's their ability to, uh, to communicate in so many different ways. And so that's the one thing they understand is is story. And that's the one thing they want to, to work. They, they want to make sure that what they're giving you as a director is, is going to contribute to the understanding of their character and the story.
0: If you're just joining us, we are speaking with Thaddeus O'Sullivan. He's the director of a movie opening this week called The Miracle Club, starring Laura Linney, Kathy Bates, and others. And your movie, and your movie, I think it seems to me from the trailer and reading about it, because I got a lot of materials about it, um, it, is a movie where there is where there's a lot of scope for that kind of deep storytelling. There there are characters that have uh, lived through difficult things that are hoping for great things. Um, some of them, as you say, material things or or sudden changes in their their circumstance. But other ones just looking for um, the strength to go on with a with a situation that they know that 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 won't change. Right, the material parts won't change necessarily, but they they can build. God can build them into the person that they need to be um, in this spectacular place, Lords. Um, the movie is also set in nineteen sixties Ireland. Which um, I'm dying to see. I'm dying. I read all about in your materials about the the intricacy and the delicacy with which all the setting was done um, to really recreate uh, that time and place. That must have been very um, exciting for the cast and also for for you as a director.
2: Yeah, it was exciting for 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 me, of course. Yes, because uh, I left Ireland when I was 18, so that was around that. So I set it in that period uh, because it's a period kind of frozen in time for me, and uh, it was interesting to revisit. And I know it well, and I come from a similar background to the characters. So uh, myself and the designer and the costume designer had great fun uh, uh, going back to that time and um, and uh, getting into the detail of it. But the point you made, the thing you mentioned about the actors uh, getting a lot out of it, they certainly do because they uh they're not Irish but they're playing Irish characters so uh the kind of detail that we were able to offer offer to them on the set uh in terms of props and uh you know uh, texture and, and all the rest of it was um they what was incredibly helpful to them at the moment they walked on the set uh, uh particularly the 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 kathy Bates uh uh character uh, character played Cathy Bates. And um, she was, I mean, she was just so into uh, the detail and the colour. It just seemed to create a layer uh, of understanding within her of how the character is. And um, she was, uh, she, she, would just go around the set uh, poking and prodding and, and mm. examining, uh, examining everything and finding things that I, I hadn't seen and uh, being inspired by them and them. Um, and, of course, the uh, Laura Linney character, she's returning after over 40 years away to the same home. So every, the moment she walks in the door, everything is redolent of a past that she has been denying. And maybe uh, so, and maybe
0: visually not much has changed, right? So she's gone for 40 years and she comes back to a place that is m- maybe stuck in time for her, it seems to her.
2: Absolutely. Uh, and uh, you often find when you research this kind of thing, you find that the houses don't change much um, quite often. Families don't change the house very much, or the furnishings in it over 30, 40 years. It's quite common. And especially if uh, somebody's grown old there, uh, and in this case, Laura Linney, she comes back to bury her mother. She comes to the house, and um, and all the textures and all the colors and, and uh, everything about it is, is, uh, has a, uh, creates a layer for her. Uh, of of, of uh, understanding, which is quite different uh, than that that's affecting the Katie Bates character, because for the Laura Lenny character, it means a darker time for her.
0: You know, you mentioned that these characters, this whole, um, this group of people uh, in this story are working-class Irish women um, in the 1960s. Now, that's a very particular class and place and time, um, and I read in, in your materials that the screenwriter um, wanted to express the, the maybe the inherent nobility of these women. That, that maybe looking at them from the outside, we, we might stereotype them or, or think of them s- smaller than they are, but that they, they had these very vivid, very rich lives um, and, and filled with grace in a sense, right? that uh that he wanted to express did you feel that you you were able to do that in your movie and 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 show the richness of their lives
2: well it's a challenge of course because uh um i think uh, well in terms of design i think we created the world that um uh, felt uh, felt good felt right uh, to them and and, and to me uh, and um the language is um uh, jimmy's uh, language particularly the humor is very much uh, very much catches the um uh the kind of expressiveness of the those of uh, women who come from that background uh, and i think uh i think that's very accurate indeed um and that sense of uh, of the absurd mm-hmm. uh their their particular humor uh is um is uh is, is very uh i i would say um they are very religious people but they they don't um they don't take themselves too seriously and uh, they don't take a a lot of things that are going around them too seriously they like to i think um add a bit of levity to life and um because life for them is quite tough uh there's not much money and there's not many jobs and um in that period and I think that um, that hard boiled kind of humor comes out of um, uh, the, the sort of challenges of the everyday. Really.
0: So they're they're Dealing great. With- the great dream that they have and that they are able to come that comes to fruition for them is to go to Lourdes, uh, and you know this is a Catholic radio show, and many of our listeners have been to Lourdes or would like to go to Lourdes, and Lourdes does have this. Um, has this wonderful aura around it that as it should, it's a place of miracle and encounter with God. And um, I have a friend, I I, I immediately sent the trailer to a friend of mine. She just went to Lourdes. She and her husband lost uh, a child uh, within the last year. And she went to Lourdes and and she experienced um, a lot. She experienced God's grace and his comfort and 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 his embrace at Lourdes. She's not looking for a miracle. She doesn't she doesn't. She doesn't expect her son to come back to life, but but she needed that grace. Um, are some of the are some of the characters in your uh, in your in your movie looking for that experience of grace at Lourdes?
2: Absolutely. I think uh, the, the thing that, that that I felt very comfortable with in in talking to the actors and talking to them about Lourdes and the effect that Lourdes has on people is uh, my own. Uh, Uh, Family. Uh, My father was very ill when I was about five or six, very close to um, losing his life. And my mother uh, prayed for his recovery. Uh, He did get uh, better. And uh, she always promised that she would go to Lourdes to thank Our Lady for for her intercession. So they made the journey. And it was a very, very celebratory journey for them. Uh, And um, rather, you know, to just celebrate the power of prayer that was how my mother used to describe it, and um, I, and I think that uh, these characters go uh, with that uh, generous heart as well. You know that they they want to be able to. There's an expectation that you will you will en- enjoy a spiritual engagement, uh, however mild or, or strong. It doesn't uh, you know doesn't have to be a, a powerful. You know, it doesn't have to be the boat of lightning or some great epiphany. Uh, I think people just uh, are are happy to leave their uh, daily world behind and uh, get a little closer to their spirituality.
0: Well, Thaddeus, thank you so much for joining us today on Conversations with Consequences. And I urge all my listeners to watch that movie. It opens this weekend. And uh, I'm very much looking forward to it. And I think it will move many hearts. And again, a tremendous cast. I'm sure it'll. it's beautifully acted and directed. So thank you, Thaddeus.
2: Thank you very much.
0: Before Father Landry's inspiring homily that he so kindly gives us every week, I wanted to take a moment to tell you about something that we just experienced in our family that was very beautiful. We took in, I wouldn't say a friend, but an acquaintance about two and a half, almost three years ago. Her name was Guadalupe. She needed a place to stay for a while and she ended up staying for a long time and became very sick and died in our home. It wasn't exactly our responsibility because she wasn't family but it turned out to be an amazing fountain of grace for our whole family. And that's the way it happens, right? Things that are very, very difficult come with tremendous rewards when we face them squarely and, and do it for, for the right reasons and, and because we know that God accompanies us. I wrote a piece about this, which tells the whole story, mostly of Guadalupe, who was an awesome person, very poor, but very honest Extremely hardworking, uh, full of faith, a daughter of the church, a daughter of God, who found herself completely alone at the end of her life. We were granted the the privilege of being her family at the end. You can read about it in the, the National Catholic Register, and it's called "Welcoming the Stranger." I think you might find it might find it a a good read. And again, it's it's mostly a story about her and her hard life. It's really a story about possibilities of how We can go through life encountering people in need and not even realizing it or encountering them and and embracing their need as though it were our own or or the need of one of our family members. Every morning, the Catholic Association reviews all the latest news and sends our subscribers a carefully curated collection of the most important news of the day. Items are specifically selected for a smart Catholic audience like you. Don't let the world take you by surprise. Subscribe to our daily media roundup at thecatholicassociation.org. And now, Father Roger Landry offers us, as is customary, a short and inspiring homily to prepare us for this Sunday's Gospel.
3: This is Father Roger Landry, and it's a privilege for me to be with you. As we enter into the consequential conversation the risen Lord Jesus wants to have with each of us this Sunday, when Jesus will give us one of his most important parables, describing how we're supposed to respond to his words and work. I'd like to begin with a question. Why among the first apostles did 11 become great saints, and one become the most notorious traitor of all time? As I'm recording this in Rome, we can ask similarly why some popes have become great heroes of faith and others have become scandalous and notorious. Wasn't God trying to help them all equally guide his church? Why among the students of a poor inner city school will some kids from down and out circumstances go on to become famous surgeons and others end up in jail? Why do some kids go on to become great athletes while others with the same coaches and even greater physical coordination and endowments never make it? One of the most basic reasons is because some people are more receptive and responsive to grace, to education, and to coaching, respectively. This is an important lesson for all of us to grasp, and it will help us to understand better what Jesus will be teaching us on Sunday, as he gives us the important parable of the sower and the seed, and teaches us crucial lessons about how to be a more fruitful disciple and a more effective evangelist, how to receive God's grace and how to live in accordance with it. At the end of the parable, Jesus says, whoever has ears to hear ought to hear, which is the ancient way of saying, pay attention. By means of the parable, Jesus is going to help us to take a soil symbol of our hearts to determine how well we pay attention and how receptive and responsive we are to him, to what he teaches and to all he seeks to do in our life. To understand what he communicates in the parable, we first need to grasp a little about ancient farming techniques. Sowers would scatter seed along long, thin plots before any soil had been turned over. The seed would land on four different types of earth. The first was the hardened land between plots that would serve as paths on which people would walk. There were the ancient sidewalks. No seed could penetrate them. The second was very thin, rocky soil that would have thick layers of limestone a few inches underneath the surface. Here the seeds would take and quickly germinate, because the water would be retained within a few inches of soil. Because the roots couldn't penetrate the limestone, however, the sprouts wouldn't be able to last for long, quickly dehydrating and withering as the rising sun grew in intensity. The third terrain Jesus describes is thorny soil, which is basically good earth that could have borne a lot of fruit if it weren't covered with thorn bushes and weeds that exhausted the nutrients of the soil so the good seed couldn't grow. And the last type was good soil that Jesus describes bore much fruit. Just as a sower would scatter seed over all four types of earth, so Jesus scatters his word, grace, and saving deeds over all four kinds of people represented by the respective soil samples. We see all four soil types among his first listeners. We saw in many of the scribes and Pharisees the hardened soil that totally resisted Jesus' words in the testimony of his miracle, closing their ears and hearts to his message, and actually accusing him of working his indisputable miracle, not by God's power, but by the devil's. The evil one, as Jesus mentioned in the parable, would come to snatch away the seed before it could get planted. We see the rocky or superficial soil in the people for whom Jesus worked the miracle of the multiplication of the loaves and fish. They listened to Jesus for hours. They even followed him after the miracle along the entire upper lip of the Sea of Galilee. But most of them abandoned Jesus as soon as he asked them to believe something they found hard, namely his teaching on the Eucharist, that to have life we need to gnaw on his flesh and drink his blood. They were willing to listen to Jesus' words for a time. But when he asked them to do something that made them uncomfortable, their faith withered and died. We see the thorny soil in those who said that they would follow Jesus, but first they wanted to bury their father or go on their honeymoon or inspect their new oxen. We also see it in the rich young man who came to Jesus as a good teacher and who had kept all of the commandments from his youth, but who, when Jesus gave him a choice between storing up for himself treasure in heaven or holding on to his earthly riches, chose the thorn bush of his worldly wealth. His materialism choked his growth and faith and prevented his seeking perfection together with Jesus. We see good soil in people like the Blessed Mother, who as the ancient icons attest is depicted as having conceived the word of God first through her ear before she conceived him in her womb, whom Jesus praised for hearing the word of God and putting it into practice, who wanted her whole life to develop, as she told God through his angel, according to God's word. We see this good soil in so many other saints like the 11 apostles, Martha, Miriam, and Lazarus, and others, who bore abundant fruit by allowing God to work through them. We see all four soil types in people today. The ultimate point of Jesus' parable this Sunday is that God wants us to receive his word and to respond to him with good soil. Jesus tells us that good soil produces fruit, not just a little fruit, but abundant fruit, 30, 60, or 100-fold, all huge numbers according to the Jewish mentality of the age. Do we listen to God's word with the intention to bear great fruit? Sometimes Catholics place more trust in Tylenol than they do in the power of the Word of God or in receiving the Holy Eucharist. Many of us listen to worldly gurus more attentively than we do to Jesus. Many Catholics, to be honest, can't even remember on Monday what the readings were on Sunday Mass. And that's a sign not so much of a bad memory, but of a defective listening. If the Word of God is going to be a fruit, we have to listen to it with bearing fruit in mind. Those who have good soil hear his word on forgiveness, for example, and resolve to receive and share that mercy. They hear Jesus' words on being peacemakers and go out with the prince of peace to spread that tranquility of order with God and others. They hear his word in seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then begin to seek the king in their study, work, relationships, and family life. They hear his word to chop off our body parts if they lead us to sin and focus with brutal determination on eliminating from themselves not just sins but near occasions of sin. They hear Jesus' words to love others as he has loved us and begin immediately to look around themselves and ask for the grace to love each person they meet with the love with which Christ has loved them first. To bear fruit, we have to pay attention to and remedy what can prevent our spiritual growth. We have to attend to the hardened, stubborn soil in us. We see it in know-it-alls. We see it in the proud. We see it in hardened sinners. But we also see it frequently with seniors, even good, morally upright elders, who, because of the passage of years, have become so set in their ways that seemingly not even the Lord can change them. They consider themselves old dogs whom not even God can teach new tricks. We need to be aware of our stubbornness and listen to the word of God as if we're hearing it for the first time from the lips of Jesus himself. We similarly have to attend to rocky or superficial soil that we see in those who listen to the word of God for the pleasure it gives, but don't allow it to go deep because they never really make or follow through on firm resolutions. These are folks who are always trying to evaluate whether they like a particular homily, spiritual book, or religious podcast, rather than trying spiritually to profit from everything God gives them. Each of us needs to ask God to chisel, even to jackhammer, through our own subterranean limestone so that what he seeks to plant within us can make a profound difference. And We likewise have to attend to the thorns. Jesus doesn't say the thorns are sins, which would certainly choke the growth of the Word of God, but rather, worldly anxiety, the lure of riches, and the pleasures of life. They suffocate the spiritual life by sucking away our energy. We seek mammon rather than God, or pursue honor or power or pleasure more than God's will. Or we're excessively preoccupied with the cares of the world and various anxieties, so much so that God can no longer get through. Jesus is not calling us to pretend that we don't have fears or anxieties, but to go to him with them. The last point I'd like to make is that this parable really helps us to handle setbacks when we're trying to share our faith with family members, friends, and others. We may sow the seed of God's word as well as anyone possibly can. but We may not bear fruit because others may be right now too hardened or too superficial or too concerned with pleasure, riches, and worldly anxieties to let the word take root and grow. We shouldn't take such setbacks personally, because we can't control others' soil. Some people will use their ears to hear, and some sadly won't. The only thing we can do is to keep sowing the seed with eager longing, trying to help others eradicate the thorns and limestone and overturn their hardened soil. So we ask God's help to prepare the soil of their hearts to receive Him with abundant fruit. The biggest factor as to whether the, at the end of life we will end up a saint, is the type of soil with which we respond to the seed of all God's action in our life. This Sunday, Jesus wants to till, cultivate, and fertilize our soul. Let's give him full cooperation. Whoever has ears to hear, ought to hear. God bless you.
0: Thank you, Father. To learn more about Father Landry, check out his website. It's called catholicpreaching.com. And make sure to catch his writings at EWTN's National Catholic Register, where he's a regular contributor. A big thank you to all of our listeners for joining us today. I hope that this show was helpful. I hope that our conversations have consequences and that those consequences are fabulous for you. Go with our prayers.